It is 5.15 in the morning on Wednesday, March 30th, and I just woke up. That's Siobhan O'Grady. She's a foreign correspondent who's been reporting from Kyiv. We heard a lot of booms overnight, like way more than usual. And we weren't expecting it because the Russians actually said they were going to pull back off of Kyiv. But despite those promises, that doesn't seem to be the case. I heard several loud booms and then the siren went off simultaneously with another boom. This has just been the soundtrack for Ukrainians for five weeks. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Elahe Izadi, in for Martine Powers. It's Thursday, March 31st. Today, we take you to Kyiv to hear what life is like there. Siobhan has been in the Ukrainian capital since before the Russian invasion and has watched the city change overnight. She said at the beginning of the war, there was immense fear that Russia would take Kyiv within days, if not sooner. But five weeks later, the city is still under Ukrainian control. I asked her if anything has changed since Russia said earlier this week that it would drastically reduce military activity near Kyiv. Strangely enough, the change that I noticed was that shortly after that announcement, the number of explosions in the capital seemed to just absolutely ramp up. Tuesday night going into Wednesday was one of the loudest nights over the last several weeks in the capital. And while a lot of it seemed to be outgoing artillery from the Ukrainian side, um, it was clear that they were responding to some kind of threat and that some of it seemed also to be incoming. So um, I heard the air defense systems activated. There were sirens, there were booms. At times there were long rumbles of of that air defense. So we definitely knew and were very aware that something was happening and it was quite a noticeable change. It was several hours over the course of the night and woke me up again early this morning of just these consistent boom, 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 boom. Um, And I just thought that was very interesting because we were approaching with some skepticism the Russian claim that they would back off the capital and um, off the city of Chernigiv, which is about 95 miles north of Kyiv and has been under intense Russian attack for the last several weeks, causing what residents there are calling a humanitarian crisis. And some have feared that it will be the next Mariupol, the southern port city that came under very intense Russian attack where a complete humanitarian crisis has unfolded. Yeah, and I I mean, there was a lot of uh, skepticism as to whether this would hold or there would be any change. But was it even more shocking and surprising that it actually got worse, it seemed like, from where you were after after this announcement? It's still a little bit hard to confirm what exactly was happening overnight um, and why why it was happening. What we did notice on Tuesday was that our team split up that day and we actually were able to visit two different positions sort of on the front line. I went with a small group of journalists in a military convoy. We were not told where we were going. In fact, we thought that we were going to a press conference and then we were told that we were actually visiting a hotspot position. And so we were not allowed to report the exact location of where we were taken. But I can say that it was north of the capital. And there, there was a network of trenches that had been dug. 
soldiers were positioned with their assault rifles um, and RPG launchers prepared and looking through lookout points um, across this kind of big expanse. It was in a bit of an area that felt a little bit more rural. And uh, what they told us was that Several days ago, this area had been coming under intense shelling and that there had been a lot of attacks um, and now things had significantly calmed down and that the Ukrainian forces were clawing back territory from the Russians. But my colleagues who visited another position in a different area outside of the capital actually experienced intense shelling on the way and um, and witnessed it themselves. So it seems very much that depending on where you are outside of the capital, the battle is far from over and there is certainly no reason to believe at this time that Russia will be backing down as they claimed because we've seen even over the last 24 hours um, some kind of altercations going back and forth between the two sides. You know, when you were there in in the literal trenches with the Ukrainian military, did, did you have an opportunity to speak with anyone in this fight? And what did they tell you about this experience and what they were doing in that position and what they had seen? Yeah, so we spoke with a couple of the troops who were stationed there, um, kind of at lookout points. And while we were there, also the colonel general who's in charge of the defense of the capital briefed us and told us that the city of Irpin, which is north of Kiev, and its images coming out of there have become very symbolic for the Ukrainians that they want to regain complete control and be able to clear out all Russian positions from that area. And the commander told us that as of Tuesday, the city was 95% under Ukrainian control. So the extent to which that's true is not entirely clear. We haven't been able to access Irpin yet ourselves, and we're hoping to make it there to see. But the idea that it's only nine, that it's, it is 95% under Ukrainian control marks significant improvement, but it means that it's still not necessarily livable with a lot of shelling still ongoing. Do we have any sense at this point of how many people, particularly civilians, have been killed in the conflict? And, and what about those who have survived and lived through these attacks? What does survival look like right now? Yeah, we know that hundreds of civilians have been killed and it's really hard to get a complete count just because some areas remain inaccessible. A full death toll has not been released that is reliable at this point. And I think the fear in Kyiv is it remains that sort of wrong place, wrong time um, to become the victim of a rocket or missile strike. We've seen several residential apartment buildings struck, um, a shopping mall that was struck also. And so when these kinds of incidents occur, it really creates panic and fear uh, among the civilian population. And that's what many Ukrainians have told me they actually believe is intentional on the part of the Russians, that they want people to be afraid. They want people to flee so that it makes it easier for them to come in and try to take the capital. And also just to sow panic and discontent to make people feel that the capital is not able to be safeguarded by Ukrainian forces. So I think after so many of those attacks in the first week of the war, a lot of people were, were quite worried about being out and about on the street. But in the past few days, we haven't seen as many of that type of attack. And so I think that that's helping people feel like they can step outside, go to the grocery. And some, I think, are also just realizing that after five weeks, in some cases, of staying almost entirely underground, that it's just not really feasible mentally for that long and that they do need to get fresh air and try to step outside. So I think as time goes on, more people are feeling that the capital is, if not entirely safe, at least not under the same level of threat that it was in the first days of the invasion. So even though you're seeing fewer missile and rocket attacks on things like apartment buildings and people are starting to venture out, it's still very much a fortified city. 
Can you describe what that's like? Yeah, it's quite remarkable because I just think if listeners can just picture their own city, their own regular coffee shop or the corners they're used to seeing every day, and now imagine that these enormous barricades have just been pulled into the street on many blocks. I mean, streets that used to be two-way are now one-way. Streets have these huge pieces of cement blocking them in the middle. In some places, they've taken old train cars and trolleys and dragged them into the middle of the street, creating these zigzag sort of checkpoints where you have to really slow down. And in fact, so many people haven't slowed down enough and so many of them come out of nowhere when you're driving that there have just been cars crashed all over the city. And in some cases, they then take those crashed cars and pull them into the street to use them as a barricade. So, I mean, it's just unbelievable to see the way that these makeshift checkpoints, or as they call them here, block posts, have been created. People have been creative in the way that they've done it. I've seen some soldiers even lighting little fires at their checkpoint to stay warm. Some soldiers had their dogs with them um, at the checkpoint and not dogs that are working or anything, but just their pet dog. I've seen even like the bust of a statue sitting on a checkpoint or a piano um, that was used in Kiev as sort of these public street pianos being pulled into the street as well. So there are just checkpoints throughout every city block essentially. And then there will always be forces standing there who, you know, you roll down your window, they ask to check your passport and your trunk. And it, it was actually quite impressive how quickly they these were all erected and people um, were positioned throughout the capital and used what materials they had to just ensure that if Russian tanks or Russian troops made their way into the city, that they would find it very difficult to continue down the main roads. Hasn't there also been some conversation or concern that the way in which Ukrainian forces are embedding within the city in this manner could also be putting civilians at greater risk? Definitely. Those are concerns that have been raised um, in particular by human rights law experts who are concerned that when a city becomes militarized in this way, out of obviously out of necessity to protect the city, that it becomes easier to justify attacks on civilian targets because... First of all, when civilians become armed and are joining the territorial defense forces, there are, of course, questions about are, are they a civilian any longer? Are they a targetable soldier in, under the laws of war? Other locations, such as checkpoints that might be directly outside of an apartment building or a coffee shop or a restaurant, also become potentially targetable under those laws. And so there are concerns that as the Russians continue to attack the capital and other cities around the country, that they would be able to justify the attacks because the city has become so fortified that it's difficult to distinguish between civilian and military targets because the city just transformed essentially overnight. Is there any other option for fortifying the city in such a way that, you know, you wouldn't have like a checkpoint or um, armaments next to an apartment building? I think that certainly there could be ways to minimize it, but the the argument from Ukrainians who support the the way in which the city has been barricaded is that they don't really have time to worry about the laws of war right now because they're trying to just defend their capital against an invasion and that those rules uh, apply to situations where you have time to plan and think. And in this case, it's an emergency and they're they're doing the best they can to protect civilians by installing these military checkpoints and not the other way around. Was the announcement itself, though, whether it's a false promise or not, a sign of a shifting military strategy for Russia? Like the fact that Russia would even say that it was going to scale back in Kyiv. Does that indicate anything for them on, on their view on how this war is going and maybe not going as how they had 
thought it would. I think there's no doubt that this war is not going the way that the Russians thought it would. Even the United States and other close allies of Ukraine expected a much quicker fall of of the capital. And of course, the capital has stood for five weeks at this point against intense Russian aggression. And Ukrainian forces have proven that they are not willing to give up without a very intense fight. And of course, they're receiving a lot of international support now as well. So I think there was a level of interpretation that it could suggest that maybe they were rethinking their military strategy and would maybe be willing to take something smaller than what they'd initially come in for, which seemed to be all of Ukraine. Uh, but after just a few hours of hearing you know, further attacks on the capital and the surrounding areas, um, and to know that shelling was ongoing throughout that day, even around the capital... And despite the promise that Chernigiv, which has been under intense Russian bombardment for weeks, uh, would be among the places that the Russians would spare in the coming days as they, you know, seem to be making some kind of promise to lighten the effects of the war on civilians, uh, officials there said that intense bombardment continued overnight and that they saw no suggestion that the Russians were following through on that promise. I felt like in the beginning of the war, we would hear all these stories about the steadfastness of the Ukrainians, you know, like soldiers and regular people to fight back and dig in. And now several weeks in, Zelensky's government has indicated it's willing to compromise on things it previously wasn't. So what's your sense of the resolve of the Ukrainians right now? I would say that the resolve remains stronger than ever. I continue to meet people who say things in a just totally normal tone of voice like, well, if the Russians come here, I'll just strangle them with my own hands and everyone is prepared to do that even if they don't have a weapon. And those kinds of remarks that have just become part of the everyday conversation in Kiev. I, I really don't get the impression that anyone here is willing to make compromises. I think compromises on you know foreign policy and other issues such as neutrality might be conceived of differently among civilians than some kind of suggestion that Zelensky would actually cede any territory to Russia. From the civilians I've spoken to here, they are horrified at the idea that any territory would be given up to the Russians. They were very proud that Zelensky turned down an offer to cede Mariupol in exchange for you know, the fighting there to cease. And they, they said if Zelensky gave up Mariupol, then other cities would be next. It would be Chernigiv, it would be Kiev, it would be Odessa, and then the Russians would just control the whole country. So they were very proud that, that he didn't back down on that. And my understanding from the people I've spoken to, and I've spoken to quite a lot of civilians over the last few weeks, is that they really believe that they are in the right, that they've been attacked by an outside aggressor, that they do not owe Russia anything, and that Zelensky should continue to stand his ground. Siobhan O'Grady is a foreign correspondent for The Post. The story was produced by Jordan Marie Smith. On Thursday, Ukrainian and Russian officials said they agreed to a temporary ceasefire in Mariupol. The southern port city has been under siege. Buses have arrived there to help people escape. After the break, how impromptu musical displays in Ukraine offer a sign of hope in a time of war. We'll be right back. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. 
So follow the campaign moment right now, wherever you're listening. And now, one more thing about songs in the key of hope. In a month of horrible sounds from Ukraine, of air raid sirens, of bombs, of wails of desperation, there have also been sounds of beauty. In late February, a young boy in a hotel lobby in Kharkiv played the piano as Russian forces inched closer to the city. People around the world have been watching these videos of music being made in the midst of war, a sign of resiliency in the face of horror. In a bomb shelter in Kyiv, a seven-year-old girl named Amelia sang Let It Go from the movie Frozen. There was cellist Denise Karachevtev playing in a burned-out city square in Kharkiv. As a woman swept up shattered glass inside her mother's burned-out apartment in Kyiv, she sang the Ukrainian national anthem. And just last week, a classical music concert in Kharkiv went underground, playing in a subway station between explosions. This story was produced by Emma Talkoff. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Sean Carter and edited by Lexi Diao. I'm Elahe Izadi. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen.